Hey folks, we are back with uh, Bryn Musselwhite this time. Um, journalist extraordinaire, videographer extraordinaire, and uh, general all-round retro car person. Um, and uh, been looking forward to chatting to Bryn for a while. So uh, welcome, Bryn. Hello, David. Hello. I'll take that extraordinaire journalist and things that I don't. I don't. I'm, unfortunately, I'm not actually a journalist anymore. Well, once upon a time. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, and I worked out very recently because I, and I can't remember why I did it now, but I've written. I estimate over a million and a half words about feature cars and road trips and stuff like that. Um, which I thought it was going to be maybe a couple of hundred thousand, but legitimately I have the, the invoices for the magazine articles to to prove it and the average word counts and all that sort of stuff. So that really did surprise me. Enough words to get to the moon. Uh, yes, and <laughs> back a couple of times probably. Is it 220, I don't know how many thousand miles it is to the moon? That's bad. I don't, That's don't, a hole in my knowledge. You don't need to go there, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Uh. <laughs> Not, this is not important to my cause. There, there's, exactly. There's no atmosphere. Um, I, I have. I actually have a list of questions for you, which is shockingly well organised of me. Um, no, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And I, you know, we could always have the we could have the same conversation that we've had for. I've known you for about 15 years. Thereabouts. But I, I think yeah. Let's let's get get this hit up with some questions then. Okay. Where we want. I'm going I'm to start you with my starting question for interviews, which is uh, why cars. Why cars? It is the the same old story for for most of us. Uh, it's a family member. My father uh, was a fireman by trade, and they, later on in his life, uh, when he became quite good at being a fireman, he became a civil servant. And throughout his life, he raced old pre-war cars, predominantly MGs. And then, I when I came along. My first abiding memory of my father was sitting in his race car, aged about four, and him pushing it off a trailer. And in my head, I'm steering it and all that sort of stuff. But in reality, <laughs> I was pretty sat there dribbling on myself. And then, yeah, just constantly being surrounded by that sort of thing. Uh, because he worked so many hours, the time invariably I spent with him was either we were very, very blessed. We used to have a month's holiday each summer where we'd go abroad. Um, and outside of that, it was generally going to Silverstone, going to Lydon Hill, going to all these other places. He used to either go circuit racing, sprinting, hill climbing, whatever, uh, because my mum was was kind of over it by that stage. So <laughs> me and him would get in an old Volvo estate or an old Vauxhall Carlton estate and drag some old race car around the, around the country. And then he'd go off and race. And looking back now, I was about probably 11 or 12 and I'd just be roaming the hills around Wiscombe or like I say Lydon Hill or you know even Brands Hatch and places like that and hanging out with all these other sort of kids who were the orphans of, of racing parents um, so that, that's the car thing really I think it was just indelibly imprinted into my you know the, the way I was nurtured as a child well ra raised on cars this is a this is a good story yeah yeah it, and disproportionately so it was you know my my father was um, he worked very hard but it's hard to say, really. He he had a lot of cars. I mean, when he died, we genuinely, we were kind of waiting for the phone calls to say, you know, is he going to come and pick up this race car or this, uh, you know, this other car that he's having built somewhere or this chassis or is this engine that's been rebuilt? And we never got the phone calls because I'm fairly sure there was a few rebuilders or friends of his that were like, no one's ever going to know it existed. What are we <laughs> going to do? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that was that one. A bit, bits, and, bits and pieces disappearing off. 
um, as, as they occasionally do, I guess. So what was your first yeah. car? What was the first car you had? Did you inherit first anything from I your owned... dad or did, did you uh, buy No, it? no, no. He was, very, he was very locked down on... And I don't know whether it was... He, basically, I was taught to work for everything. So if I wanted something, I had to work for it. There was no handouts until I was 17 and my first car. So um, just flipping back slightly, I had a Honda C50 Cub moped when I was about 15, 16. And again, he he turned around and said, right, you know, go buy it yourself. That's the way it's going to work. So I found one in the local paper for 30 quid, and it was about four miles away at this little village. So went and had a look at it. It had rusty front forks. It literally came out of the back porch way of an old farmyard. And I, I gave them the money that I saved from my Saturday job. And the following weekend, my dad disappears off with our dog, who was this comedy-sized um, Irish wolfhound cross with a giant schnauzer. Oh, my God. And they go for it. I mean, it was ridiculous. We had a big old farmyard table, and he could literally just walk up and put his head on it sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, off he goes for a walk, comes back about two and a half hours later. No crash helmet, no MOT, no insurance, no tax. Um, Danny, the, the the Irish wolfhound, traipsing along behind him, and he's just ridden this C C fifty back across the hills, back to the village that we lived in. Not really. So, sort of, I mean, looking at it now, he was a chief fire officer of a of a county, and he kind of knew the legalities of that sort of stuff. <laughs> but he was like, you know, well, that's how we're going to get it home. And yet, if I wanted to go and do something or drive one of his cars or something like that, it was never allowed so it was it was very much i had to do it for myself so he said to me don't buy a motorbike for the road when you're 16 because all my mates had dt50s and all that sort of stuff we lived about seven miles outside taunton up on the quantock hills on the edge of the quantocks and to get anywhere i had to cycle so my nearest friend lived three and a half four miles away and i really wanted a motorbike and he said look don't buy a motorbike and i'll get you a car so i passed my test um, in a couple of months and he I had a Saturday job on a campsite hotel he goes off uh, to to look at this car and I you know I was getting an auto trader I'm looking at it I'm going is it going to be a Chevette is it going to be a Metro I had this whole list of cars I mean basically he could have turned up with anything and I would have loved it right that was always going to be a given because it was going to be mine yeah yeah and he turned up at work on a Saturday lunchtime and he said, right then, son, we've, we've found your car. And my mum was there as well. And they were both looking pretty pleased with themselves. And I, was, and I genuinely had no idea what they were going to buy me. I, I had no real choice in this process. So I, I stood there. I was like, right, you know, what, what have we got? And my dad said, well, we bought you a 2CV. And I was like, right, 2CV, 2CV. And I knew that he'd had a couple of 2CVs in the early 60s in London because he had a French girlfriend called Salome, <laughs> and he called the 2CV Salome, and it was a little 425cc um, AK, I think, with the engine code on it. And uh, so I knew they were they were lurking in the history, and my mum had had one uh, when I was very young, and she crashed it into a cow. So 2CVs <laughs> had always kind of been lurking in the background. And, yeah, sure enough, bought this 2CV, and it was seven years old at the time. It was bright orange, and it was delivered on, um, the, I think it was a Tuesday night after he told me on the Saturday lunchtime. And it was it was amazing because looking back now, he knew exactly what he was doing with the car and everything because all my friends had Mark 1 Escorts, Mark 2 Escorts, Chevettes, you know, all that kind of stuff. I had this 2CV and I can remember just thinking, oh, God, it's so uncool. It's so slow. 
Actually, I didn't even really think it was uncool. I just thought it's a bit slow. It's a bit slow, you know. Mm. And at college, about three weeks after I got it, it was a bit of a sunny day. It was, you know, one of those early spring summer, summer, day, summer days. And um, I put the roof back and we were going off somewhere as a bunch of mates up on the hills. And my mate had a mini, had a mini with blacked out windows and a couple of girls wanted to come with us. Or we had a couple of girls with some of that. And they all came and got in the two, in the two CV. And he ended up driving on his own with another one of my mates. Nah. And I can remember driving along just going, there it is. That's why you Genius. have a two CV. Genius. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, re- it was really cool. And that then started off a chain of two CVs and Morris Miners, um, which saw me through my, my late teens and early 20s. I would not have, not have had you down as a two CV man, but there we are. That's uh... a massive. There is still one about quarter of a mile from where I'm sat now, which I have partially owned for ten or twelve years with a galvanised chassis Ooh. that one day needs to be revived. And I keep on looking at the video of God, and his name escapes me. The guy with the BMW flat twin yep. engined. Oh, De Beers, God. Alex De Beers. No, no, no. That's the green and white one that was at Ooh, the yeah. gathering, wasn't it? Oh, not that guy. No, this. Uh, he's a very famous, very famous. He's a very talented, well-known two CV racer, ah. and it's him shaking down this BMW flat twin engine two CV at Mallory Park, maybe seven or eight years ago, and it just keeps resonating with me because two CVs were one of those things that I never quite finished scratching. Mm. So I always think you need to have some sort of closure with a vehicle style or genre that you you achieve a certain point. You're like, yep, cool. I've I done can that. move on now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Not that it would be the best in the world or anything like that, but that you feel you're satisfied with the point. And the two CVs, I had six or seven of them. Um, I bought a Marla big bore kit for one. I drove uh, the... It was Garrett built three T1 turbos in about uh, 1990, I guess, 91, 92, something like that. And one of them, Garrett kept one. Another one got fitted to something random. And a guy in Western Supermare fitted one to a 2CV. And there was an article on it in Car Magazine or Auto Car. It was one of my dad's mags because I didn't really read those sort of newer style performance magazines. And I can remember tracking the guy down, driving up there in my 2CV and saying to him, I, you know, I love this. I, I want it and it needs to work. I, you know, has this, uh, all those things that you do when you're, when you're yeah. young and exuberant. And he let me drive it and it was amazing. Um, and then about, oh, maybe six or eight months later, he, he phoned me up and said it was for sale for about £3,000, uh, which was uh, about £2,950 more than I could earn <laughs> in about a month. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, never got it. But I, I don't know what happened to that car and it probably got broke. But again, that was one of those ones where he goes, I know how good. A 2CV on the right day is immense. It's everything you need from a car. And it was pretty much only my ego that took me away from two CVs into other cars. Ah, that's interesting. So, yeah, I, I, I've never ever ever been in a two CV, so um, I should probably give it a try. What? Uh, but the one thing I do know about them is you can drop them onto the floor very, very easily. So um, that's always in their favour. I think they're a great, perfect sort of first retro type thing, like from like, as they would be now. I mean, obviously, when back when you were learning to drive, you could buy one that was only seven years old, but. Um, 
I think as yeah. a, as a yeah. car you can mechanically understand, but can also have fun with, and is already kind of interesting in this day and age. Um, I think they're probably a, a, a good first foray into this ridiculousness. So you started off well, clearly. The the only thing I would put down against them would be the crash safety. Yes, a little bit. Um, and I always reconciled that that it was better than a better than a motorbike or a push bike. Mm. And you know, I used to do a lot of stupid stuff, so I didn't really think about that sort of thing now. But I know getting in one now, I'm a bit like, you know, I'm a, I'm more aware of my own mortality. I've also got more to lose. Um, materialistically i'm a father stuff like that so all these things come into play but yeah the the tcv i i I, the first one i lowered was my first ever one because we went to go and watch truck racing at brands hatch and the support race for the truck race was the two cvs yes and i can remember the commentator very clearly and i i remember referencing this again years later when i ended up in the commentary box at brands hatch and I could see the view that he'd seen as he was saying it. He, there was these four two CVs going down the start finish straight, and they they went into that right end. You know, given that I've commentated at Browns Hatch, I don't know, paddock. fifteen times. Right, paddock, there we go, there we go. Um, coming to Paddock Bend, there was three or four abreast, and it, and they literally they ducked over the crest, and you very slightly move lose sight of the outside line, and then and then they reappeared again, and they were still four abreast. And he said, I have literally never seen that. That has not ever happened. So, um, And that really stuck with me. And I remember walking into the pits and looking at these 2CV race cars. I was there in my 2CV. I'd only had it a couple of months. And saying to the guys, like, how did you get them that low? How did you get them that low? And this racer, who, whoever he was, was amazing. He just literally jacked up the side of the car and he went, right, you need a 9mm spanner on that. If you want to get fancy, 17mm spanner to take the shock absorber off, wind out the tie rods, and... Uh, Bob's your uncle. And he then explained that if you wanted to upright the kingpins, you just cut the trailing arms and rotated them on the front so that you didn't have massive amounts of caster. I think it's caster, you know, the, yeah. um, where the wheels lean over. Um, but he said, yeah, basically, you can lower them for free. So that was it. I drove back to Somerset. I used £11 worth of petrol <laughs> in my 2CV, which was horrendous at the time. I was like, oh, my God, I've just consumed half of the OPEC reserves and then yeah promptly went into the garage I think a couple of weeks later I went into the garage because I always remember it again parents were away they used to travel a lot and I'm there I think I got drunk and watched American Graffiti Good choice. and then went out to the garage and it was yeah so that would have been that would have been midsummer because I can remember it got light really early in the morning and I lo- I absolutely put this 2CV on the ground I went out and did maybe 15, 20 miles in it. And I can remember just driving round and round and round about laughing my ass off at how well it handled. <laughs> I was just, you know, four o'clock in the morning and the sun's just come up and there's me in this 2CV bowling like, uh, howling like a banshee with the roof down. It was, yeah, very cool. That's awesome. Uh, absolutely awesome. So from those adventures, you ended up being a journalist. So how did that transition occur? What did you do and why? That happened because... I'd read, so I'd naturally, as you do, you rebel against your parents. So I guess some people do, some people don't, but I, that's what I did. My father wrote, uh, read Motorsport Magazine, Classic Car Magazine, and Safety Fast, the MG-specific magazines and the old stuff. So when I was a kid, I read a comic called The Buster Comic. And when I was about 10 years old, he turned around to me and he said, look, son, I think you're getting a bit old for comics. 
I think, you know, if you want to get a magazine each month, um, you know, I'll, I'll get you one on subscription and then you can you can have a magazine. I was like, OK, cool. So I think we went into WH Smith's on a Saturday and I was just faced with this wall of print and I picked up a Street Machine magazine and it would have been when Street Machine was maybe six, seven years old, something like that, mid 80s. And I cannot I can't remember what the magazine was on the cover or anything like that, but it just resonated with me. And that was it. I I asked for a subscription to Street Machine magazine, so the news agent used to deliver it once a month, and that was it. So I read that, and those guys, you know, the Nigel Grimshaw driving across um, America in a Pontiac GTO in the early nineties. Um, so I left school and I had the two CVs and all that sort of stuff. Moving on through the nineties, art college, whole bunch of random jobs, never really settling anywhere. And the whole time I've read Street Machine magazine and car culture is always there. And I'm obviously becoming more and more aware of the world. And about a couple of years out of college, me and two friends wanted to go and travel around the world, as lots of people do. So we saved up a couple of grand each and planned started planning this route out. And then one of my friends dropped out. And he's still a very, very good friend to this day and has a gorgeous backdated 964 Um but yeah, basically he got a job with a with a really good job and was like, right, guys, I can't come. So me and my other friend Paul just went, well, what are we going to do? You know, where are we going to go with a couple of grand each? So we decided to go to America and basically just go to New York, get a car, drive to California, drive back to New York. And this was 1996. That was my that was our game plan. That's literally as technical as it got. And. I can remember it was early July and we're lying on the floor in his mum and dad's living room. And it was one of those really super hot days and the clouds, uh, the the wind is very, very slightly ruffling these full length curtains. And we were sat there and it was just kind of like, we were looking at teletext or something or Oracle or whatever it was you used <laughs> to have on the TV where you try and find the cheap flights. Yep. And we booked the flights to New York on a brand new credit card I just got. Um, because my dad has said to me, look, book it on a credit card because it's um, it's more secure than booking it like by paying. And I don't even, th- maybe I had a debit card, I don't know. Um, anyway, did that and then was like, oh, this is exactly what they'd love in Street Machine magazine. So I wrote a letter to the address in the front of the magazine and it was when Matt Howell was the editor. Mm. So I addressed it to Matt and I didn't hear anything. And that was cool, no worries. So I just, we went to America and I kept a diary and I took a load of photos, got back and I wrote the letter again. Um, and this time it came back from Rich Nichols. And it turns out in the the time that I'd been, we'd planned this trip and gone on it, like we booked the tickets early July, we left a couple of weeks later and we came back late September. Um, the, it had transferred editorial direction from EMAP in Peterborough and Matt had left as editor and it had moved to uh, Clive House and Publishing, CH Publications, down in southwest London. And Rich Nichols, who had worked on Custom Car, was now the editor. And Rich just basically wrote back to me and went, yep, yeah, cool, looks good. Um, you know, write it up in this format, send me these pictures and, you know, drop drop it in when, um, or, you know, post it across when you can. So I did that. And I remember, again, I was living in Somerset and I had this Hillman Avenger. And I thought, if I stick this in the post on a floppy disk and as a printout, like I can't, I can't do that. I've got an opportunity here 
to go to the street machine offices. And, I, you know, this doesn't sound like much now, but when you've read a magazine for 15 years throughout your formative years, and those 15 years constitute, I don't know, what would it be like 70% of my life? And you can't remember the first five years of your life. So it's virtually all my life I've read this magazine. I've read Clive Howson writing about his his Beetle and his Carmen Gear and all this sort of stuff. And Rich Nichols in, in Custom Car. And he, this guy's like, you know, he's cool for me to come to the office. What? So I said to Rich, um, I'm going to I'm passing by Walton on the Hill. Um, can I drop the article in? And he went, yeah, yeah, of course, you're passing by. Brilliant. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm passing by. I basically <laughs> course, got in my Hil- Hillman Avenger. Yeah, got in my Hillman Avenger with my uh, and my Hillman Avenger, which cost me 195 quid. And I had my floppy disk and my printout, and I drove to Walton on the Hill. I got there for lunchtime, went into the office, which was at the back of a kitchen showroom. It's a very small office. I can still smell it because it was, it was very paper-heavy and paper-centric. And had a good chat to Rich, absolutely stand-up guy so much love for rich nichols and he went clive's over in the pub it's lunchtime do you want to come over i was like i actually get to meet clive Housem. so and i don't think i've ever even told clive this and i haven't spoken to clive in years but we went over to the pub clive's having his, his glass of red wine at the end of the bar and yeah i was just talking to this guy that had basically edited the magazine of my my formative years so it was an incredible experience and that then led to my, my article being published in May, God, when was it? I don't think when it was, maybe May 97, something like that, it came out. And I, I, you know they liked the way I wrote, so Rich phoned me up and said, look, do you want to write an article a month for us? Um, telephone interviews, we'll, we'll send you a spec sheet. So Mike Key, who was a popular photographer for the magazine at the time, would go off and shoot a car, and whilst he was shooting it, the person who built the car would fill out a text sheet with their name and address, run down what the car was, bit of history, and then that would give me something to phone them up and basically sit on the phone like we are now, talk cars for an hour. I'd type up all the notes, write an article, send it in. That was the format. So I did that once a month. And uh, and yeah, I did that for about 18, yeah, about 18 months freelance, like once, once, yeah, once a month, once every couple of months, so I get an article published. That's fantastic. Did you end up you end up working for them full time, or is it just um, always freelance with uh, Street Machine? I was only ever I was only ever freelance, and this is where I I sort of learned a very a very good life lesson. I think um, of taking the positive out of all the negatives. Basically, for those eighteen months I was freelancing, I just dotted around the country. I lived in Chester. Um, I got I had hepatitis A. Ended up in isolation and. A hospital in North Wales and all sorts of all sorts of things randomly happened to me. Um, ended up in London, and my father uh, fell ill, and he was in his mid to late fifties at the time. And this would have been early ninety eight. I was working for a computer firm in West London doing maintenance contracts, which was one of those one of those temping jobs, which had just kind of turned into. We'll pay you £14,000 a year and come into this office and it'll be amazing. And I just got sucked into it because I was living in London and I was getting drunk with my friends and we were going out and I needed some money to be able to do that. And he fell ill, living in Somerset. He just retired, um, not through ill health reasons, but just because he'd been very successful and was in a position where he could. And yeah, he was diagnosed with a brain tumour at the end of February and at the end of uh, start of May, he died on May the first. Oh, yeah. So 
very quick decline. Um, at first, we thought it was depression linked because there was mental, you know, the, it, it sort of manifested as being mental issues. Mm. Uh, it was a very, very hard time, as you can, you know, I can imagine. Yeah. Anybody, anybody that's lost anyone, right? It's 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 a personal journey. But for me, there was two real key moments which really lead me to sitting here talking to you now. And one was I told him he was going to die. So the, the the doctors wouldn't tell him that he had this inoperable brain tumour and all this stuff. And he was kind of coming out with this garbled messaging. So he'd refer to the nurses by my mum's name. And you could tell there was something going on behind the screen, basically. Yeah. So I, I my mum and my sister and I, we said, well, look, we've got to tell him. And I was going to be the one that was going to do it. So at the age of 24... I think 24, 25, I told my dad he was going to die. And he literally, it was the last piece of clarity he ever had. But he held onto my hand, looked me in the eye and just went, it's one of those things. Bloody and hell. At that point, yeah, yeah. And at that point, I just went, you know what? It bloody is. Because we're all going to die. So unless you get on with it and you do it now, you're going to look back and go, shit, I wish I'd done that. So I left there. Um, he then died a couple of weeks later. I wasn't there at his death. Um Weirdly, I was um, I was auditioning for a children's TV presenter. Oh, yes. I was going to come on Birmingham. to that at some point. Uh, but, uh, so this is how it all stacks up, right? Um, and, and yeah, I, and it's something I, I didn't talk, I didn't tell anyone I was a children's TV presenter. I was only a children's TV presenter for a very short amount of time for very good reason. Um, but essentially a, ba- a mate of mine was a producer for Granada TV, uh, a mate from Somerset. We were all drunk in the pub when I was back in Somerset at the weekend visiting my dad whilst he was ill. And he turned around to me and said, they're looking for children's TV presenters um, on CITV. I reckon you'd be up for it. I reckon you'd be good at it. I was like, yeah, whatever, mate. Don't be so stupid. And he went, no, no, seriously, put an audition tape. He said, I can't do anything. You know, it's nothing to do with me, but I reckon you'd be good at it. So we went out and recorded this stupid tape where we're surfing the seven bore and we're falling over things and all this stuff on VHS, sent it off. I get an audition, I get through, I get down to the last six. Basically, uh, Stephen Mulhern, the guy off Britain's Got Talent and all that stuff, he got the job of the male presenter and I did holiday cover for him So, because I was the next in line. And um, essentially, that's where I was on the day my dad died. But that then gave me this glimpse because I didn't get the presenting job and the holiday cover didn't come till much later on. But I got this, it was the day of his funeral and I got this phone call middle of the day and we'd had the family service in the morning and we were having a memorial service in the afternoon. And, you know, this phone call, hey, Bryn, you know, you didn't get the job, blah, blah, blah. We're really interested. We want to work with you in the future, blah, blah. I was like, okay, cool. And I'm I'm this maintenance contract manager for a firm in West <laughs> London. And I just had this moment of clarity and just went, what the utter shit are you doing, you idiot? So I went back to London. I turned around and told all my mates, I'm quitting London. I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, th- th- this has to change. Um, and I think about two, three days later, I had to deliver my, and this does loop back to being a journalist, trust me. I had to deliver my monthly article to Street Machine magazine. So as was always the way, if I had a car and I had an opportunity to drive, that's what I did. So I drove down to Walton on the Thames, Walton on Thames, or was it Walton on Hill? It was Walton on the Hill where the office was and Walton on Thames where, where Rich lived. Uh, at about 11 o'clock at night and as I went to go and put the envelope through the door I could see the light was on in the office so I knocked on the door and Rich came out to the door and he, he was like you're right what are you doing I said oh, I'm just dropping off my article 
And he went, oh, right. I said, what are you doing? He went, oh, it's deadline. You know, this is what you do when you're on deadline in a magazine. Went inside, had a cup of tea, left at, you know, half 12 at night or whatever. And I said, you really need someone to help you. And he went, yeah, I do. He said, but we can't afford anyone. I went, well, how much can you afford? And he went, well, 500 pounds a month for a couple of days a week. So I took that. I went back to my job um, and I turned around to my boss who, and I, I don't even remember his name, but he was an Indian guy who'd been back to India the year before because his father had passed away and he'd taken a month off work and had been with his family. And as soon as I said to him what had happened, he turned around and said, take a month off. And oh. I'd only been there t- two months. <laughs> um, and he said, just take a month off, come back in a month, see what you say. So I went back to Somerset, obviously spent time with my mum in the family house. Just, you know, there's a lot of stuff to process. And, uh, and, and I built my beach buggy. I finished my beach buggy in that month with the help of a guy called Steve Dyer. And Steve Dyer was the guy that built the slammed Land Rover, the, the, you know, ah, the Series yeah. 1 yeah, yeah. mix smash sort of thing in his garage. And he was building that whilst we were finishing off the beach buggy alongside it. And at the end of that month, it was run to the sun, got the beach buggy finished, uh, drove it to Exeter, drove it down to Newquay, um, got as far as Exeter, and my buddy who was riding with me was the guy that I drove across America with, a guy called Paul Quartley, who was like one of my oldest, dearest friends. And he's he taught me so much as well, just about life, because we basically get to Exeter services and the clutch is gone. Ah. So and I'm, I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. I've just spent all month building this car. I say building this car. You know, I've thrown some tube at it. I've <laughs> splashed some paint on it. And I haven't probably even bothered changing the spark plugs in the 25-year-old Type 1 motor. So he turns around to me and said, are you familiar with the uh, process behind spread betting? And I was like, not really. And I'm still not to this day. But essentially then we had a 10p bet for every gear change that I reckon I could pull out of the bag before the clutch finally went. And we had to drive back to Taunton. Went did run to the sun, took some pictures, wrote about it for Street Machine. And then that started me off, um, fixed the beach buggy up and then used to commute to uh, Walton on Walton on the Hill, um, once a week, I'd leave on a Tuesday morning about four or five o'clock in the morning in the beach buggy, drive to southwest London, sleep on either the floor of the office or um, mate's floors or something like that, and then drive back a couple of days later, having done the news section, the letters section, or whatever was needed, you know, write an article for those two days. And for that, I got £500 a month, and that was just about enough money to, to keep me ticking over. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, just sort of again persistence and uh just trying to find your opportunity i guess so it wasn't it was never a conscious decision mm. and i think that's what it apart from that moment where i just went you know when i was literally like why am i working in london for, like who who made the decision that i should be working for a computer firm in west london like hang on a minute where was i when that happened yeah. oh yeah i was drunk and i was you know and i was chasing somebody you know so so yeah that was really uh, but after that everything was gut everything everything i've done that's led me to this point today has been a gut decision some of them have been formed in seconds and i've i've sold houses and left countries you know yeah 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 so that's gonna that that's how the journalism kicked off through being a freelance journalist because i was still freelance for street machine and interestingly enough right this is where I should have learned the lesson about journalism was 
I can remember at the end of each month, Rich used to go through the magazine and he'd put a post-it note on each page for the freelancers as to how much they were going to get paid. And that would then go to um, the accounts department next door in the office next door, basically, and they'd make the payments. And I can remember digging out the, the, the copy of the magazine that my first article had been in and stuck on the page was £500, um, which at the time obviously was a huge amount of money to me. And he'd crossed it out and written 350 Ooh. And because he was he, he had no money, right? So yeah, yeah. he'd he'd been working on car magazines, I think, since the late 80s. It's now the late, late 90s. He's seen the market drop. He's seen the budgets drop. He's seen the readerships drop. And because people think, you know, the 90s were the heyday. They, they, they were and they weren't for maybe Max Power and stuff like that. But then Max Power was very much a shooting star, it, you know, it, existed for 10 years obviously it lasted longer but in its heyday so he had an opportunity and he knew that 350 pounds to me was going to blow my tiny mind and i'd be more than happy if he gave me 35 quid and if he could shave 150 quid to relocate it somewhere else and spend it on some content then all credit to him and i don't hold it against him at all but at that point i should have gone oh that's that's very telling that's this is how the industry works okay Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. So, uh, but through working for Street Machine, I then started going out on features, and one of the one of the first people I met was John Hill, mm-hmm. um, who was a or I don't think he really does. He still does stuff for Classic Ford and a couple of other mags, but John was just hilarious. He was about ten years old. He is ten years older than me, and he was just the perfect person to introduce me to the to the industry because he was a cabinet maker and a cabinet restorer and he'd been into modified Morris Miners and had got into Street Machine by being part of the Morris Miner Owners Club and knowing Russ Smith and Matt Howell and all those guys and he'd kind of just come with a magazine and continued as a freelancer and he's just very happy-go-lucky and a really good guy and we had the best of times and I basically looked at him and went, yeah, this is this is cool. This is what I want to do. Turn up places, blag your way into old factories, get paid to write about cars Take photos of them. Sounds amazing. It worked out well. Yeah, did all right, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so you were, you're part of the origin story of um, Retro Cars magazine, which is uh, probably its own yes. uh, own podcast. To be fair, but um, yeah, that. Uh, so I'm guessing like Street Machine. Well, I say died. It kind of turned into American Car World. So at that point, were you then looking around at um, other opportunities, or you know how how did <laughs> it come about that you got involved with the this ans publishing i'm guessing it's via simon woolley who we should probably get it on was here. it was no no so it was it was actually john hill oh, okay. so john was a freelancer for classic ford magazine um and i think i did my first job for classic ford in 2000 i think it was um and yeah let me get this right so i freelanced for I mean, John really was pivotal in introducing me to so many. He was so generous with his his spirit and his energy, and just he he just you know, it didn't matter if someone needed a writer, because um, that's predominantly what I did then, because I couldn't afford the camera kit, even though I had an old film camera. And also back then, I was getting paid great money for writing. I was getting eighteen pence a word. Um, you'd get you know two hundred fifty quid for yeah. writing an article, and if I was on it. I could go out during the day, see the car, 
go home that night and sit up till three, four o'clock in the morning and write the article. So I could earn 250 quid. I could earn five, 600 quid a week. And this was the late 90s. And I and I literally had rent, rent, beer and fun money and, and you know, to spend the money on. So um, he introduced me to Revs magazine. And in mid 1999, I went to Revs to talk to them about some freelance work and I sat down with a guy called Simon Hargreaves, who was the ex-editor of Performance Bikes magazine at EMAP. And, and Revs was part of EMAP. It's like little brother to Max Power magazine. And he said, look, we're going through a redesign. There's a lot going on. I need a features editor. Um, would you, I'm, I'm actually introducing, I'm interviewing you for a job right now instead of freelance work. And I was like, okay, right, okay. So anyway, I got the job. It turns out it was actually for a features writer. It was 13 and a half grand a year, which was incidentally what I'd been what I'd left London on yeah um what uh two years before and I moved to Peterborough and had nine months of absolute hilarity and horrible pain at the same time it was just it was a uh, I didn't like where I was where I lived I didn't like where I worked um but the core of the work which was basically us pissing around in old cars and getting paid to do it was all that mattered I, I i made just enough money to to support myself and to eat a bit of food i think at one point in my fridge in my rented flat which literally had a bed a surfboard on two suitcases because a girl came around once and was literally like are you are you some sort of weirdo um <laughs> and i didn't have a cooker but i had a fridge because the flat came with a fridge and it had a can of like oxide nitrous oxide booster fuel or something in it um i had a tie and a block of out-of-date cheese and i think it must be one of those moments bearing in mind i was a 20 uh, 25 year old man 26 year old man you know she she looked at me and was just kind of like you're a child you're an <laughs> utter child i think she was genuinely worried that i wouldn't wet the bed or something so um yeah revs was great um but essentially, the, the magazine was redesigned uh, when I first started. It had a new sort of clearer, more technical direction and not so sort of um, it was maybe a bit more in line with Max Power. Anyway, nine months later, the sales figures had tanked and we got a we got an email from the publishers essentially saying, what have you done? You've ruined the magazine or stuff. We were all called into this meeting and I just signed a lease on a house that morning. So Simon Hargreaves, who was still the editor, turned around and said, we've got a meeting this afternoon, lads. Um, you know, we've got, we've got to make some changes on the magazine. I was like, look, I'm going to go and sign the lease on a house. Is this anything I should know about? And he went, no, 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 you're fine. Don't worry. Came back in the afternoon, got told that basically the publishers had turned on us. And I genuinely, I was like, what? The publishers that told us we'd done a really good job on the redesign and how amazing it was and how they were so happy to have this magazine, their stable and all that stuff. And he went, yeah. And I went, okay, cool. I went outside, went back up to the office, wrote a resignation letter in crayon, <laughs> um, went downstairs. Infinitely where... Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was literally what I had closest to hand um, on my desk. Wasn't any sharp objects, but Cy was outside and at the, at the time we both smoked. And we're both having a cigarette. And I just handed him this um, this resignation letter. And he went, I'm not accepting that. Don't be so stupid. It'll all be all right. And I was like, no, seriously, I'm out of here. Like, I, I can't work in this anymore. Um, and he said, what are you going to do? And I went, I don't know. And he went, brilliant. So <laughs> I I had this lease in this house in Peterborough, this shared house, because I'd been banned for driving for speeding. 
and I'd had to move into Peterborough and got my license back and I was, I was sort of tied into it. But yeah, I went freelance again and that's when I did my first job for Classic Ford and that's when I found out the, the editor was this guy called Simon Woolley and Simon Woolley, um, for those that don't know him, has been, um, a he's probably, I genuinely off the top of my head cannot think of a magazine editor that I respect more and that goes for people I know, people I don't know, uh, and and titles all over the world. There's a couple of guys um, who do really really good titles who are equally as dedicated. But Simon has managed to his longevity in 20 years of being an editor, and his constant way of evolving content, making it feel fresh, having ideas, and just being able to hold a community together has always inspired me. So um, that's who he is. And he's still the editor of Classic Ford magazine now, having gone off and done other things like retro cars, which I will get back to, I promise. Uh, anytime. But <laughs> he also, um, he was in the year above me at Graphic Design College in Taunton in Somerset. So we had a lot of mutual friends and he was genuinely like, hang on, Bryn Musselwhite, didn't you go to SCAT? And I was like, Simon Woolley, didn't you go to SCAT? So then we sort of, you know, the, the friendship, which was never really there at college, I would be lying if I knew him very well at college, um, was then kind of like, ah, oh, sigh, right, okay. So then he then had this idea, and I think it was pretty much his idea to do Retro Cars magazine, which again was like a practical classics, but for cool stuff, stuff that had that undefinable element of want in it. And he came to me and said, do you want to write the A to Z of, of Retro and sort of you know be there from the start? So clearly I was all pumped up and excited because this was... It was old chod that lots of us wanted and lots of us could actually afford. So I was I was well into that because I had absolutely no aspirations to move <laughs> any further up the automotive ladder um, as perceived by other people. So and there I was. Well, what's interesting about that is, um, and I'll probably come on to the evolution to where you get to this point, is that you're now filming Bugattis and such like. Um, but you started out yeah. at, at a place where, like the probably the the pinnacle of automotive excellence was Beardmore's Minor or something like that. So uh, it's interesting that, yeah. that that sort of journey you've uh, gone on there. Um, I just want to touch on something. Somewhere along the line between sort of retro cars and now you became a photographer and your photography is good. I like it. But how did that... Well, thank you. How, how did that occur? Like you, you've gone from sort of writer to... Photographer was that a, a thing born out of need? Because I guess as um, budgets got squeezed, um, people started to have to fulfil dual roles. Or did you always want to be a photographer, given that you went to graphic design um, school and such like? Well, I've the, the, here's the thing that's always confused people, and it's kind of my curse and my blessing, in so much as I am a jack of a lot of trades is that I've always been a photographer. So I first had a camera when I was about nine or 10 years old. I have photo albums full of photos from Silverstone, from Lyndon Hill, from Browns Hatch, all these circuits that I went to with my dad, basically he'd go off and race and I'd stand there with a camera. And I can remember being stood in the pits at Silverstone when I was maybe 13 or 14 and he was doing, I can't even remember what the race was now, but basically you had to go out and do five or six laps and then you'd come in, you'd change a spark plug and you'd go back out again. So we're all in the pit garage at Silverstone, in the pit garages, sorry. This is like a VSCC um, race, 
vintage sports car club race and all of all, all along either side of me are these middle-aged men and their wives and they're the people that are changing the spark plugs and because my dad and me are there on our own and my dad can't really let me even though he did let me wander around on my own um i was changing the spark plug for him even though i had essentially he was just going to get out of the car and one of his mates was going to help but i'm stood there with my camera and i remember this steward coming up to me and sort of saying sorry son you're not allowed in here and then i showed him my pit pass and he was like but you're not allowed a camera and i went why aren't I allowed a camera? And he went, well, you've got to, um, you've got to have a press pass or, you know, who are you taking photos for? And I stopped myself, I'm taking photos for me. And he was kind of like, well, if they're just for you, then that's okay. I'm like, oh, a 13 year old kid. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, there I am in the pit lane at Silverstone taking photos. And to me, it felt totally normal. It was like, well, I just wanted to consume more media than I had available to me. Yeah. So now whether I would do it now, because now you can have a phone and you can have an iPad and you can have all this media 24-7. It's there all laid out for you. Pinterest, Tumblr, forums, whatever. Whereas then, if I wanted something, I literally took a photo and I put it you know, in my, in my bag and I went and got it developed at Boots and I got it back three weeks later and it was mine and I had it and no one could take it away. And I could open up that, that book on a, on a cold November's night in my bedroom and go, no way, look at that race car, look at that fire truck, look at that bin, look at that toilet block at Silverstone, look at that wall. <laughs> I literally took photos of everything. So the moving on through, I did a bit of photography at college and product photography and stuff like that and just always had a camera. So when I went to America and did the trip, we bought an old Cadillac in North New York state because we knew, I mean, I knew we had to buy something. that was kind of interesting, right? If I was ever going to sell this as an article and I took a load of photos. So my first ever article was a piece of photo journalism. Ah, that's interesting. Now to do it professionally, I was going to need to spend a lot of money on cameras, a lot of money that I didn't have, but I could make good money from doing a bit, little bit of TV presenting and TV work and I could make it from writing. And as it was, the early 2000s, it was an absolute heyday, right? I am, you know, I'm getting great money for basically writing. So what, and, and writing involved a dictaphone and a laptop. So why would I go out and spend 15,000 pounds on cameras when I can travel light and move fast? So I kept my old Canon AE-1 and I, I still took photos and when I did, I did articles um, for Revs. I used to go off and do shows and stuff like that, the sort of stuff that, in inverted commas, a proper photographer wouldn't do, or the sort of thing that words had to sit alongside. So show reports, road trips. I did features like that for various magazines. Um, but I knew loads of great photographers, so it just made more sense to go out and do jobs with them. And then financially, the when the magazine market started dying in the mid-2000s, and I sold my house in 2006 because I was living in Somerset. I then took some of that house money because I basically, I sat in my house and I was like, I'm here for a week and I'm gone for three weeks. And I'd, I'd taken some really good advice through a friend of a friend who'd said, look, the market's going to crash. If you want to sell your house, sell it now. I'd made good money on it. So I then got on a plane, went to New York went into a place called BH Photo Video. I knew exactly what I wanted. I bought a 5D Mark I, um, lenses, camera bag, um, everything I needed really, and then hit the road across America again and started taking more photos that could were then in a format, in a digital format, 
and of a quality that I could sell them to a magazine. So essentially in answering your question, I've always been a photographer. I just haven't always been overly visible with it. That's, an, that's interesting that you sort of it, it come back around um, to be a, a skill you uh, needed again and required. Um, so that's, that's very, uh, very nice. Now, the next step is then in so there's intervening years because um, uh, I, I sort of known you in between this time and you've been doing uh, speed hunters and all that kind of stuff. But suddenly you're doing yep. video one day and that kind of came out of nowhere for me. Like I, I sort of knew you in this transition period and you disappeared off to New Zealand for a bit, um, which is why RetroRise doesn't own Retro Cars magazine people because uh, Brill and I did look at doing that. Um, um, yeah, yeah. We talked to, well, I yeah, yeah, so, you, you went certainly to went went talk to future and said right how much for the title because <laughs> i wanted it but um yeah very glad i didn't now yeah but, no <laughs> yeah in retrospect it's probably a good idea yeah but things turned out good but the, the video work was um so again i've made videos since i was at school um there was a my my my, my like i said my my father was you know he did all right in life we had a video camera when i was a kid so i used to video stuff at home i used to make little films I used to, you know, I used to hang action men out of windows and pretend that they were scaling walls and make little films. And when uh, now my design course, when I left uh, GCSE, I videoed it as a presentation. So instead of doing a portfolio, it was a video presentation. So again, loads of video clips, uh, very early video, um, uh, digital, my first digital camera, I used to film on back in the early 2000s. So I've just got legions of just little 30 second clips of just being places doing stuff and also the tv work so this is the real key sorry to loop back round. the real reason why i got into video production was because i uh when i did the tv the children's tv stuff the guys in the office next to citv produced a car program called motor week um and they also did pulling power which was on granada or central or on digital something like that and the guy who was in charge of all that the series producer a guy called mark boss and he found out through a mutual friend the mutual friend that had actually recommended that i go for the children's tv thing found out i was a motoring journalist because i was a year or two into that sort of thing right it was like the first year that i've been doing it freelance full-time and he went oh well you know do you want to come and do some presenting and some production work so i went and worked at granada tv for on and off a year 18 months um, until I think there was a guy there, and I don't know how true this is, but I, I can well believe it. There was a guy called Mike Birch, who I think he's still around, and he used to do a couple, I think he did fifth gear for a little while and stuff like that, maybe Johnny knew him, but basically he saw one of the clips I'd done, he said I looked like a cowboy. Because um, I was, right? I didn't know what I was doing. I was driving around in brand new Citroën Saxos and Hyundai Coupes and stuff like that, and basically blagging it. But that was my first experience of production, so... You know, we we used to get. I, I blagged a Hummer off Frank Warren, the boxing promoter, for a week, and <laughs> we. So I don't know. Like, can I say this? We damaged it. Okay. And <laughs> we got it fixed. Well, we I got it fixed overnight, and then it went back to Frank Warren, and he never knew. So, Frank, if you're listening to this and you still have your Hummer that was given to you by Don King and Mike Tyson. I, the damage was absolutely minimal, but there was damage and we did have it fixed and that happened and it was 22 years ago and I hope you can forgive me. <laughs> and also my Rover my Rover P6, which ended up got 
getting dumped on his driveway, leaked oil onto his drive as well in his garage where the Hummer was parked, which didn't go down too well. Um, <laughs> it's not a man you yeah. upset. Uh, yeah, I had the chance to meet him when I dropped the Hummer back and the the his his driver, who was an ex-professional boxer, told me that the Rover P6, because I dropped it off and collected it from his offices in Harlow. So I picked this Hummer up, driven it back to the Midlands. We'd filmed with it for a week and I'd driven it back down to Harlow and my Rover P6 is still around the back of the office. And this professional boxer turns up to get in the Hummer to take it straight out because they're going out that night in it. And he went, oh, Frank's not very happy with you. Your your car dropped oil all over his garage. And I'm literally looking under the, ro- under the Rover and going, well, I can't see any oil. And he went, no, 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 it's been at his house all week. I was like, what? And he went, yeah, yeah, we parked it where the Hummer was parked. And he's got this cobbled garage or something and it dropped oil. And I was like, oh, crap. And he went, don't worry, he'll be here soon. You can meet him if you want. I was like, no, no, <laughs> you're all right. So I jump-started, I bump-started my Rover P6 out of this office car park in Harlow and took off as this Bentley kind of pulled up in front of the building. And I was like, I'm sure that was Frank Warren. But yeah, essentially, I've never, ever told anyone publicly or had it recorded that we damaged his Hummer. Um, and now, but yeah, we did. Uh, hopefully, And now the secret is out. So, uh, it's all right. He probably won't listen to this. No, we'll be all right. Uh-huh. So um, essentially did, did, did all that kind of TV stuff. And then that dropped off as, you know, I, the, the journalism became moral. And also the TV stuff as a presenter, it didn't sit very well on my shoulders. It felt odd. Uh, you know, you, you had the odd occasion where you'd you'd see somebody in a garage and you realise they'd seen you on TV earlier that day and it was like, yeah, they'd treat you differently. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not into this. People are closing down to you. They don't tell you their truth. So I was kind of like, yeah, I'm over that. Um, <laughs> but through all the modified car stuff and drifting and ho- hosting events and all that sort of stuff, I got to know a guy called Al Clark. And Al and I both remember pretty much the first time that we can remember meeting was in 2007 when I'd, I'd left England and I'd just come back from three or four months in America and when I just went and bought, for, bought the cameras and stuff and I was doing some filming at Chobham for Drift All Stars as it was called then or Togay Heroes or something and Al was doing the filming out the back of his MX-5 and we just hit it off really and there was a bit of a friendship and we sort of knew each other and through events and drifting and everything and Al is an incredibly talented filmmaker who he then his career started. He had this company called Track Day Films and he wanted to film track days by renting out GoPros before GoPros existed and all that stuff. And he basically got picked up and he used to spend all his time going to the Nürburgring every single penny. He'd leave his job in South Wales. He'd drive to the Nürburgring. He'd do tourist farting all weekend. Then he'd drive back to South Wales, go straight back to work. It was that again, that core dedication to just not questioning anything, but just going and doing it. And he got picked up after 2007, 2008, 2009, um, made a film at the Nürburgring um, through a photographer, a friend of ours, Jochen von Kahnberg, a guy called Frozen Speed, who does a lot of photography at the Nürburgring. And he recommended Al for a job. And that job was then with an agency called um, FP Creative uh, in London. And in 2012, I get a phone call off Al. And Al's like, you've done TV stuff you've done filming we need to find and he was doing little sort of short videos little promotional videos for jaguar and land rover and stuff like that he said we need we need to find someone who can produce something for us um do you want to come in and talk about it i was like yeah yeah sounds good uh so went down to london had a meeting and it was making a film about the the anniversary of sterling moss and norman jewis the legendary jaguar test driver 
going to the Miller Millia in to 1952 and proving to the world that disc brakes on a car could work. Yeah, it does. So um, it was, it, that was the story. That was the premise. So there was a budget to make this film. The Miller Millia was about two months away and we had um, full access to go to the Miller Millia with Jaguar, have Norman Jewis and Sterling Moss there, film on the podium before the race started, all that kind of stuff, and then follow them, film it, and then go on to film various other people around the story and create this film. And th- and that's what pretty much we spent most of the summer of 2012 doing. Um, so that's when my, my television producing and all that kind of stuff came back to the fore. It's probably 10 years after I'd used it last. And uh, and in the meantime, I'd done 10 of the best and various different other DVD productions. And I'd hosted loads of shows, like live action shows and stuff, through people knowing that I'd done TV stuff. So they went, well, this guy can present, he can host this. So I sort of kept my hand in a little bit. But yeah, that then turned into working for FP Creative as a freelancer with Al and essentially going off and making films for Jaguar, Land Rover, um, all over Europe. And yeah, doing that really. And that's where the production side of things really kicked off and my my analytical brain and my my travel experience and all those other things that I'd learned and also being a photographer I kind of knew what the photographers wanted and what they wanted from a tracking car and what they'd need from a scene and the just the fact that if we were in a hotel it had to have good wi-fi for uploading stuff it had to have you know, it had to be a modern hotel, so it had loads of plugs in the rooms because you've always got loads of stuff to charge and all these little things. So that's how really I became known as a producer, and that is predominantly what I do in the realm of film production. And also, there's absolutely, you know, I picked up a camera a few times and filmed with Al when it's been needed. But essentially, when I'm stood next to Al, there is absolutely no reason for me to pick up a camera because the guy is gifted. So, and it's a real pleasure to work alongside somebody like that. And my, if I had more of an ego, I would probably want to be him and all that stuff. But it's why would I? He's awesome. And, yeah, I, know, there's things I can do that he can't do. So yeah, that, that, that's basically my relationship with uh, Jason LaRosa because uh, um, I used to film alongside him. And then when we came to edit, it was like, oh, I just might as well not have been there. <laughs> just like my, my input was not the uh, quality of film; it was the uh, yeah the organising of the day and and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I always say I I get Al there and make sure he's fed and watered and he's got somewhere to sleep and then he does the he does that creative side and he's incredibly generous with his t- with his energy as well because you know we we'll stand there by the side of a track or in a studio and I'm always very aware of what I put in but he will listen to my ideas and occasionally act on them but then equally there's other times where I will say something then I'll see the edit and go oh, that's why you were doing what you're doing. Because he's already, he's kind of live editing in his head as he's creating it. So um, we formed a, a, a great little team for a while. And, you know, we it's been brilliant. And, and that's where we just ended up in the most ridiculous of situations, really, doing doing some incredible things. Yeah, you did the Bentley Bentayga in Peru, was it? Was that, am I right in thinking that? Something like that? Uh, that was, yeah, so that was that was interesting, right? So that was 2016, I think it was. Um, and this again is, so Al has always been kind of a one-man band. 
but to to get to the next stage in his career he needed to have more of a team around him so me and him working as me as producer putting stuff together meant that when an agency came to him and said look we want you to make a film he could say okay cool hand it over to us and we can make it and what happened off the back of that was bentley came to him and said oh you know we've got this thing called the extraordinary world where people can pay to drive a bentley bentega um from chile into bolivia around the atacama desert and the mountains oblivion salt flats and all stuff down through the dunes of Iquique and back again um and we're doing five or six rotations and we want to film it but we also want to uh, and we want you to film it to al um and we also want to take some some stills some some f- photos and al was like well Bryn is a stills photographer and he's done this a couple of times um, and we've, we've done numerous jobs now where he'll shoot the video, I shoot the stills I, and, and they're little low-key low jobs like a little film at the Nürburgring or something like that where there's not a huge amount of production because on the bigger f- stuff that needs a lot of production I just simply can't pick up a camera because you're wrestling a crew of like 25 people and all that other, all the other stupid stuff that happens but yeah, that chilly job was amazing he basically said, look put me forward as a photographer. They were kind of like, you know this guy, cool. They looked at my portfolio, which was horribly out of date and somehow had the faith. And the next thing we know, we're on a first class flight to South America and we had our own Bentley Bentayga with the most incredible uh, PR lady from Bentley, who I, whose name I won't mention, but she is hilariously amazing for all the best reasons. Um, and yeah, we rode around in the desert and the mountains for five days just in this mind-blowing situation of yeah it, it it just really it was it was an incredible trip an incredible trip that's fantastic um i will link underneath this video that's on youtube um unless you're listening on spotify or some other podcasting type thing um go and search for it on youtube there is also the behind the scenes of the uh, bugatti chiron um top speed shoot that um bryn was involved in um as filmed by uh, Mr. Al Clark as well. Uh, I will put a link in there so you can uh, see the sort of stuff they've been doing. Um, it's... And you can see see Al leave out loads and loads of details. He they, he just skims through so much good stuff on that film because this is he filmed he sort of put that together whilst the whole uh, COVID nineteen thing's been going on. Um, and uh, we've we've known there's been an edit lying around for the last couple of years with that late to with summer two thousand and seventeen, but that job was again incredible and i'm so thankful for it it was uh yeah and, and that again al was on the chiron launch in portugal filming journalists something that he'd not done in a few years but when bugatti said do you want to come and do it he went well yes bugatti Chiron. i should probably go and do that so and he said to them i really want to film a chiron at top speed and i can film it from another chiron <laughs> and that kind of idea resonated with them at the same time we were working on another project with Bugatti, which never came to light, but we had to go to Germany and do some filming. And Al kind of took me along. I think on the first job, I went along as his assistant. So they'd sort of just got enough money to get him to drive over to Germany and do a bit of filming. And he was like, oh, can I bring an assistant? They were like, yeah, of course. And we had a discussion. And I said, well, look, if I go, um, I can. I'm your producer. We can see where we can go with this, see if there's anything else in it. And sure enough, we had a great weekend. Things went horribly wrong with what we were filming and it never came to light. Although I would say I was possibly the first person in the world to colour in 
the front horseshoe on a Bugatti Chiron with a Sharpie marker. <laughs> and and uh, and yeah, the, I, we got to meet the, the communications team from Bugatti, or I got to meet them that weekend and just have a really great, great chat. And I think it then gave them the confidence in Al to know that there was a, a team around him that were actually, because, you know, the manufacturers, they have these big agencies and they have all these big production companies. So a bloke from Birmingham in a Mercedes estate is just as capable as all those other people, but they can't quite make that bridge to it. So mm. as as the producer, I was the bridge. And off the back of that, they then said, look, if you wanted to do this top speed thing, how would you do it? So we basically hit them with the knowledge and they had the faith in us and they and they made it happen. And it was, yeah, it it was incredible riding around with Juan Pablo Montoya for an hour in a Chiron. And when he, at the Frankfurt Motor Show a couple of months later when it was released, turned around and said, and, you know, that was the time that I went the fastest in a car I've ever done. That is my land speed record. And I always thought I will always be known as, I'll always be the unknown person in the passenger seat because I was literally... Um, CGI'd out of the whole film. Well, one, one, of, <laughs> one of my um, emergency questions um, is, what's the fastest you've been in a car? So um, I'm going to assume if that's the fastest when Pablo Montoya has been, that's pretty much got to be the fastest you've been as well, right? 261 miles an hour. That's yeah, quite that was, um, quick. And that was repeatedly as well. We did it a couple of times, a few times, in fact, over the course of the hour, because basically Juan Pablo was just ignoring the instructions. And this all came about. It wasn't intentional that I was going to sit in the car with Juan Pablo, but we gave him a, a radio. Al got in the helicopter. We, we were there for a whole weekend filming this film that we're talking about, the zero to 400 to zero. And it very quickly became apparent, like literally within half an app, that Juan Pablo could not hear Al in the helicopter and it was just going to be dangerous. So we very quickly, and I can remember him pulling back into the pits and we were kind of like, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And I just went, I'm going to get in the passenger seat with a radio, it'll be fine. And nobody questioned it. <laughs> so I just got in the passenger seat, put the blue jacket over my legs because it had Bugatti blue um, seats and I blagged a Bugatti jacket, put it over my, my jeans so that it would be easier to touch out or whatever. And off we went and me and Juan Pablo, yeah, we, uh, he, he was just, he was a legend. He was hilarious for very many reasons. But there was one particular moment where we came off the banking at the start of the Aero Lesson Straight, which is five miles long. It's about nine kilometres long. So and because they are so correct with what they've done, they've made it completely uh, level. So it doesn't follow the curvature of the earth. So at either end of the straight, uh, you're stood at tree level. So there's trees all around it and the trees start either side of the track. And in the middle of it, there is, uh, there's a, a cutaway like you get on a motorway that's about 20, 30 feet deep. Um, and we came off this banked uh, corner at the start of the tra at the start of the straight, and Al's kind of like, okay, can you tell Juan Pablo to stop in the middle of the track, accelerate up to 120 miles an hour, and come to a stop, and we're going to hover and go around him and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. And Juan Pablo's listening to this, and he just looks at me and goes, tell him I can't hear him. Tell him I'm just going to gas it. And with that, he just planted the Chiron, and we outran the helicopter in seconds. And we hit, you know, 261 and we slowed down and we did it again. And he just went, he just did that a couple of times during the hour. <laughs> and we came in and the lady, um, head of communications for Bugatti, who's now moved on, but an incredibly gracious woman and incredibly clever. And I'm not just saying this because she used us or anything like that. For many, many reasons, she was just very good at her job. Just took me to one side and she said, she said, um, she said, you, you know, that was very naughty of you. And I was like, I'm. I, I don't understand what you mean. Sorry, what have I done? And she said, 
you know, bearing in mind the whole car is telemetry linked to a technical support unit in the pits with all these Bugatti engineers. And like every time he did that, they're basically saying, he needs to come in now. We need to check the car. We need to check the car. We need to check the car. <laughs> and it wasn't because the car couldn't do it. It's just literally because everything is riding on everything on that car being right. Yeah. And the tires not being worn out and all this stuff. And Juan Pablo is driving it like a, like a brand new golf GTI at 130 mile an hour, but we're doing twice that speed. Um, <laughs> And, and, and genuinely, the car was fine. And there was, you know, I can hand on heart to the day I die, we hid nothing on that film. The car didn't break. It didn't cause us an ounce of problems. There was, it genuinely went out and repeatedly, bearing in mind they'd been practicing the week before as well, for about four or five days, that Chiron just went out and did 250, 260 mile an hour to a halt whenever they wanted it to. It was incredible. I should probably get myself on. Not, not that I can do 260 miles. Actually, I probably could at the moment. The roads are very empty. But uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, oh. yeah. It's uh, that's the fastest I've ever been. And before that, it was 211 in an R33 Skyline when I worked on revs in about 2000. That's still and then pushing it. I think, yeah, that was and that was with no harnesses at Bruntingthorpe. The literally the guy just went out and did it, and I was sat in the passenger seat going, "Holy hell!" That was again. That was a, uh, with a V box or something like a Race Logic box or something on it. So it was a genuine verified GPS speed. Good lord! And then uh, did 186 on the Silver State Classic in Nevada in a Mustang uh, again as a passenger. Um, so yeah, yeah, been very lucky. Little, to, little, but little bit of speed, sp- speed is not um, is not. I'm not a speed merchant. There was a long time I used to drive fast and I used to really enjoy it. And I used to feel comfortable in a car on the edge, but I think as you go through life, and you know, I, I met Al and met and found his overriding passion for his filming skills. And since then, I've met drivers as well. And Al is—he's an incredibly talented driver. There's very few people I go around the Nurburgring with, but I've been around numerous times with him. And you know, we've we've hit water at 90 mile an hour on the motorway, and he's just sort of yo. Know, it's it's incredible. So when you meet people like that, you go, "Am I that kind of person?" No, I'm not. So who am I? And it, what it does is it allows you to turn down the volume on that part of your life or that part of your interest and go, "Right, let me go and find out where I'm really good and what I can excel at." That's a yeah, that's a, a, a good attitude to have towards that kind of stuff, um, for sure. I, I I never understood people that come out of motorsports venues and then just drive on the road like they're a on the track and I'm like well you could have gone and done that on the track so like why are you doing this now because it, it, it always struck me that if you have that much talent and that much desire to go fast you can go and do that at the Nürburgring or you can do your track days or come and do the hill at um, uh, gathering or whatever um, so yeah it's I, e- ego I, and frustration though I, isn't I it I think that's what it is I've got what I'm going to come into it, it, it it's possibly like underneath the knowledge that actually if they were out on the track at Brands Hatch they probably wouldn't be quite as quick as somebody else in the same car so it's easier to drive quick on the road anyway that's that's a whole um rant I the could, psychology I could... of speed yeah. is is fascinating have you ever heard of a book called high performance i have not you should dig it out i can't remember that the guy was a he was a harvard psychology professor or something but yeah it's called high performance and it basically breaks it down as to why because he was really into drag racing and how illogical drag racing is. And this was, you know, that's a, it's a big old book, but it was summed up for me by an ex-girlfriend when I was 
she lived uh, just north of London, so I used to go and crash with her when I was working at Santa Pod. And I was leaving her house at six o'clock in the morning. She was a very intelligent woman. She worked in the city. I have literally no idea what she was doing with me. But she um, she said to me, drag racing? What's drag racing then? I said, well, look, you know, you line up, it's quarter of a mile, and it's the first one to the end, basically. And she went, okay. So how does it compare to Formula One? And I said, well, it's 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 a lot shorter. It's a lot more intense and all stuff. And she went, right, so the the, the fastest one wins the first one there? I was like, yeah, yeah. She went, well, how fast are the fastest ones doing it? And I went, oh, four seconds, you know, something like that. She went, right. So the more money you spend the less time you spend doing the thing that you love. <laughs> I, was, I was like, uh, yes, correct. But I then had to try and reconcile that within me. I was like, so why do it? Because the hit is so much greater. Yeah. So I guess the guy who drives away from a race circuit, having watched a race and maybe drives like a bit of an idiot down the dual carriageway, ultimately has not reached the extremes of his life so he you know he may live somewhere that's fairly familiar to him he may have married the the woman or the partner who you know conveniently worked at the same workplaces as him you know all those sorts of things so it depends how far you take yourself away from where you started as to how much you can experience i guess how much you open yourself up to experience yeah i like that uh, an interesting uh set of psychology i actually have two questions for you here that have come from john away. from johnny smith yep what is the most somerset car you've ever seen bearing in mind you're both from taunton way oh i i literally as soon as you said that it just flashed up in my head right so it's um it's run to the sun it's about 2001 2002 something like that and this car was a completely bog standard 1.6 um, Mark One uh, Ford Sierra normal five door hatchback. Most um, most Somerset car in the world. Yeah, and these guys are parked up. They've got one of the the first caravans for anybody that remembers Run to the Sun on the Travelgate campsite. As you drove into the campsite, you drove up that first road. There was, a, there was a row of caravans on the left-hand side, um, and it was one of these first caravans, but they, they'd kind of wedged this, this Sierra down next to the caravan, and it was maybe, what would it have been at the time, probably about 16, 17 years old, but it literally just had spray-painted really, really badly. Not, it hadn't even gone over the letters. It just had charred core sprayed <laughs> down the side of it. And... For anybody who's not familiar with Somerset, you've got Taunton is the the county town, the market town, and then and, and Taunton's right on a motorway. So you've got Bristol, you've got Exeter, you've got all these places you can go to. You've got the north coast of Somerset, which has got Minehead and all these holiday places, and then you've got South Somerset, and there's very much a division between the two, and Chard, Axminster, all round there. If you were from Chard, you didn't like Taunton, and if you were from Taunton, supposedly you didn't like Chard. So we're walking past a little bit drunk past the Sierra and I laughed out loud. I'm like, that is genius. And these blokes are all sat outside like, oh, yeah, yeah, charcoal, yeah, charcoal. And I was like, yeah, charcoal. I was like, they were like, where are you from? And I went, Taunton. And their faces just died. They're like, <laughs> right. You know, almost like go f yourself. And, uh, <laughs> and that summed it up for me. So That's right off the top of my head, whether it's the most Somerset car I've seen or not, that's the first one that sprung to my head. That's superb. 
Um, and do you remember your uh, VW412 uh, that you got from Johnny? Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, that was... Um, yeah, see, that's another very telling indicator of the fact that my eyes are bigger than my my achievements, I guess. Because I used to just systematically buy cars. I would never wait until I had thousands of pounds. I'd have tens or hundreds of pounds, and I would just go out and buy something. And it was a 412... I think I've even still got the, the logbook somewhere. Um... It was at a place called. Can we swear on this? You can you can swear a little bit. Bullshit. There you go. So um, bullshit, John. His name was called, and for I ne- I never saw that element of him. I actually think he was actually a very straight up and down guy. He lived over outside Milverton, and he had like an old VW yard. Basically, it was just packed with loads of old VWs. And his story was apparently he was really big into the VW scene in the 80s in London and knew all the key players. His wife was a producer on That's Life and they basically moved to the countryside before it came trendy. Um, And he brought a load of VW stuff with him and apparently had warehouses full of really cool, I mean, proper early stuff and valuable stuff and Porsche stuff. So you can imagine living in a little colloquial town, little Milton in, in Somerset, Lots of people with, you know, Mr. Zog sex wax stickers and run to the sun fans and stuff like that would probably sort of think, oh, yeah, whatever, mate, don't believe you. But I genuinely think it was a real article. So in his yard, he had this 411, 412 that had been converted into a van and had a Ford V6 put in the back of it. And the Ford V6 had been taken out. Um, And, yeah, I think Johnny owned it and I bought it from him. Yep. Yeah. I'd forgotten I bought it from Johnny, actually. And if I have got that logbook somewhere, his name must be on the logbook before mine. Star power That's there. random. Well, I've literally, I've got, uh, I've got the file ca- filing cabinet next to me with all my old logbooks in it. So I'll, um, I'll have to have a dig through. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I remember it well. It was green bottom half, white top half, with like a pale green stripe through the middle. It had been built by the Herbie Hospital in Leeds, I think it was. And yeah, I can't even remember who I sold it to. I doubt whether it even saw the day of light after that. Great shame. The ones you don't, the ones you kill unintentionally. Yeah, accidentally, accidentally destroyed. Um, yeah. So we're pretty close to the end now. We've gone on probably massively over time. I try to keep these to an hour. I think we're probably about an hour and twenty minutes in at this point. But that's all good. This is a podcast. You can do that. Um, so, it's all anarchy. Yeah. I, I'm gonna uh, see what you're working on now. If you want to just tell us what you're up to, and then uh, if you, I don't know if you've got anything Ooh. to promote or whatever you're doing, but. Uh, um, not actually working. What am I working on now? So everything. So we're right in the middle of what? This is the start of April. We're right in the middle of the COVID nineteen thing. I say right in the middle. We're potentially at the start of it. <laughs> um, so we're all in lockdown. All our work fell over very quickly. Um, so within a matter of days, in mid March, everything got cancelled for this month, next month, and we're not too sure when it's going to come back. And a lot of those projects are manufacturer projects that we can't really talk about because they're just. You know, they're, they're for stuff that's coming up in the future. So a lot of stuff we do is embargoed. So people often sort of come to me and say, oh, you know, what are you doing? I haven't seen anything on social media or whatever. It's like, well, I can't really, like, we're not allowed to. So, um, and I always think if you put stuff on in retrospect and go, oh, I did this, which I do sometimes, it's a bit kind of like, look, look, I'm doing something really important when it's months ago. Um, so right now I am planning to do a podcast. 
I've I'm talking to mm. you from my podcasting microphone. It's something that I really want to do because I don't write anymore. The journalism fell over about maybe three, four years ago. I stopped working for Speed Hunters, and um, that was my last outlet as a writer. And I really miss chats like this, right? Just talking car stuff and and yes, this one's about me, but. I want to be sat where you are and I want to have those conversations that I used to have across the kitchen tables and the garage um, bar tops and all those sorts of places that I had for so many years of my life because those stories are out there and I don't feel like they're really being told in the format that I want to tell them. So I've I've got this idea for a uh, podcast called The Piston Bully, which has kind of been a name that I've had in my head for about 15 years. And yeah, that's going to that's gonna take form. I want to do it face to face. So I'm going to wait until this is all over and see where that goes. And uh, got a couple of other things bubbling away, some which are car planned, car orientated, and some which are not, some which are completely removed from cars um, as I sort of transition through another part of my life, basically. Oh, always in transition, which is a, a, a nice thing yeah. to see. Cool. Evolving, evolving. You have, to, you have to organically evolve. And that's what I've learned is that if you sit still for too long and, and I see it now that I've moved away from certain things in my life, like the car shows, all that sort of stuff that I can't quite feel comfortable going back to them. Mm. I need to, my, my, my seeking system is the thing that keeps me moving. And it's really, really hard to reconcile that because you have to have lots of new stuff going on all the time, but you can't do that when you've chosen where to live. You've chosen the person to spend your life with. You have a family, um, and so it's yeah it's, it's it's very interesting hopefully I'm going to work on some stuff with Johnny as well at some point uh, we've talked about it for years and have never got on with it and, and maybe there's a couple of things floating around in, in the next year or so which will be our opportunity there's some TV stuff that's the thing for 20 years the phone has rung people have sent an email something's happened so just I am open to the possibilities of a life some, something will always occur it's an inevitability of life uh, AC Weisbacher in his book The Cosmic Bandidos um, said when the, the the main character had just tossed a grenade into a bar in Mexico which I wouldn't recommend but he said it'll be interesting to see what happens next and that's <laughs> always the way I, I always, I'm always interested to see what's going to happen next that's uh, you and me both well what's going to happen next is this podcast going to finish so thank you very much for your time um, thank you man seriously and on behalf of everyone listening thank you for retro rides yeah. because we haven't talked about retro rides and i know obviously you've done the stuff with simon but genuinely that is hand on heart the only forum i have ever used on a regular basis i mean more than i i've maybe put five posts on another forum and i've got three and a half thousand on retro rides and i joined when it was about a year old i it it, it was a home for a long time i still check in randomly now um, so thank you for being stoic about it and mm. just getting on with it and doing the shows and basically doing what a lot of people wouldn't do and taking their balls in their hand and going right gonna make it happen oh very too kind too kind but uh just uh just a forum it's all right uh, <laughs> uh, um, and you are it's benevolent uh, benevolent dictator that is, is that how that you is refer to I, I have a cushion that says benevolent dictator so it must be official uh, amazing i love it uh, keep on keeping on thank you very much um and podcasty people that are listening will have something come up again in the future um got some more interviews lined up got some more chats and stuff to do as well so uh should be back uh, next week with something more speech later <laughs>